Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we're having a special episode to talk about Black History Month with a special guest. You know we had to break our two-month silence to do a Black History Month. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in case people wonder if I still cared about that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's been a Actually, you just got out of rehab, and so you're back with us. I mean, it feels kind of like that. <laughs> it's been two months. How mm-hmm. was this undisclosed location? Recovering from, was it substance abuse? Or? <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, where were you? Uh, I was with my wife taking care of our newborn. Firstborn child. Yes. Who do you, who do you owe it to? You always owe your firstborn child to somebody. Oh, I, I you made the oath of devil. I haven't made one yet. Okay. <laughs> Still time. That's true. Um, so he was born about the week we stopped recording. Yep, uh, New Year's Eve. Oh, that's right. So got you that tax break. Yep. Didn't it? yep. <laughs> Last year, submitted my taxes as soon as possible, knowing that that's was coming. Right. <laughs> that's right. And you've been on paternity leave, basically. Yeah, I got some paternity leave from work, and then you know. Re- yeah. resettling in new yeah. routines takes a while yep. so so we are back and we still have a little bit of time in black history month so uh yeah by the time this releases a little bit of time yeah probably. So, uh, it's also my birthday month more hey. important more importantly oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's a classic exa- example what we call white centering <laughs> where you make everything about the white person in the room um <laughs> i hope our listeners are glad to be listening again <laughs> Uh, anyway, so we do have a special guest with us who has been he's been he's been my black friend. <laughs> Actually, well, uh, you can introduce yourself. This is John Warren. Uh, hello. <laughs> You've been a member of our church for how long? I uh, first. Started coming in 1988, oh, wow. the fall of 1988. So, wow, so 30 years. Yes. Hmm. I didn't know it's been that long. I was only uh, seven at the time, so <laughs> six or I seven. I was considerably older. Yeah, I don't remember <laughs> much. The first distinctive memory, well, not, I mean, I've, to me particularly, was when we would play chess in the back of the church yes. as teenagers, and you would watch us. And you were considerably better than us, so you could see the end coming. And when the end would come, you would always start singing, turn out the, the lights. <laughs> the party's over. <laughs> and then we either knew, we started looking like, oh no, what, what mistake we made. Um, <laughs> so that was 25 years ago. But you are a Baptist. Yes. Not just being a member of our church, but give us a little bit of your backgrounds, where you're born, spent childhood. Okay. Uh- First start off, I'm uh, 69 years old. I was born in Texas in a little town out west called Colorado City, <laughs> Texas. And the reason we reason I say it that way is the way Texans say it, even oh. though it's spelled like Colorado. It was okay. Calvary City. Uh, son of a sharecropper. So you're black. And right. All my life. Yeah. <laughs> because it is audio recording, in case people <laughs> <Yeah>. don't realize. <laughs> yeah. So my father was a sharecropper for a short while. And I always have fun with this because later on in my life, when I would tell people that, they would just, oh, no, no. <laughs> then I had to bring in my birth certificate one time with some co workers. 
And it clearly stated on that, occupation of father, farmer. Oh, okay. And I said, uh, you don't believe he owned the farm, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so you were born, what year? 1950, September. So West Texas. And you spent, I guess you were there till you went to college? Uh, well, my family moved from uh, where I was born to, uh, uh, and maybe more people know about this city, Odessa, Texas, okay, because yeah. uh, what happened recently there back this summer, there was a mass shooting there. Oh, yeah. And uh, prior to that, that, it was famous for a book that was written about the football team and, oh, and a movie that? made <laughs> called Friday Night Lights. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Texas so, loves football. Yeah, it was a big deal. So I think it was around 1952, maybe, when we moved to Odessa. Uh, oil boom town. And that's where I grew up along with all of my other siblings. I had one other, uh, one older brother. <clears throat> and so at the time, uh, so my father, when we went there, he got the first job I think he got was at a service station and you know a lot of it was work there because you could do support stuff Mm -hmm. and uh, interesting about that is that you work 12 hours it's only Mm -hmm. two and it was minimal pay Mm -hmm. (laughs) believe me and but uh, my father had aspirations to be a bricklayer and so uh, he was able to get a job as a labor with the intent to get into that Mm -hmm. well 50 years later still wasn't a brick (laughs) (laughs) so you can imagine why but yeah uh it was much better pay for that than it was other things but uh this being uh texas and the south Mm -hmm. and priest civil rights yeah you can imagine that so but one thing I always, uh, and just to uh, say, uh, give my father credit for is he always, uh, pushed us to, uh, uh, get an education to try to overcome some of the obstacles we would have. And, and I eventually got it, uh, went to college and became an engineer. And I owe that all to my father, mm. who was not a high school graduate. Mm, right. He dropped out. And, uh, but he has steered me in that direction mm-hmm. for that. And uh, I think I may have mentioned this to you one time. I recall when I was in uh, eighth grade, uh, we had this, uh, uh, I forget what class it was I don't know what class was, but everyone had to come up with what they aspired to be, mm-hmm. and then write a paper on it, and which I aspired to be an electrical engineer, mm-hmm. and so I wrote a paper on that. And subsequent to that, we had a career day at the local junior college, so we all went there, and it was for all of the um, junior high schoolers in the city, so that. Of course, we were still at that time segregated. This right. was uh, a great split, been my nineteen sixty-five. Yeah, 
Uh, so even though Brown v. Board was fifty-four, oh yeah, not everybody was <laughs> keep not everybody was following that, and they were still segregating. In and, fact, we did not fully integrate the uh, schools in the in the city until nineteen sixty-six. So that was the first year when I went to well, kind of strange here <laughs> because. Let me do a little uh, parenthetical here. Uh, where where we lived, there was, uh, and this was typical in the South, the uh, the city was divided. And so on the one side of, so what was the divide? Divide was a railroad track. Of course, yeah. So on the south side of the railroad track was the, uh, where all of the, the uh, black citizens lived. And there was, uh, in certain parts of the, on the south side, there were, there were both, uh, uh, Latinos and white, but they, mm-hmm. we were separated, yeah. segregated. And, uh, in our port, there was, uh, housing was a big problem because mm-hmm. there was no, can you imagine redlining? You couldn't get a loan for a house. So redlining, for some of our listeners, is when the realtor would take a red pen and draw a line around neighborhoods. Would they draw it around black neighborhoods, or they draw it around white neighborhoods? They would draw it around black neighborhoods. To keep, yeah. And that was no, a couple of things happened. If anybody came in town, they know. <laughs> yeah. Would not go there, and it was obvious anyway because of the houses. Right. But they would not uh, loan anything. Yeah, so it was a system that realtors came up with to maintain segregation outside the law. It was just sort of a cooperative. And so redlining was t- took place in every city in America. So there was very little, uh, what I would call, above standard or standard above housing. And in fact, any way you got, as a black person in the city, any way you got a house, you would either have to have the money to build it yourself or we had lots of houses that were bought and moved. Mm. We had two very um, big moving companies, and <laughs> hmm. their, their job was almost totally moving houses. <laughs> and so, if a black person wanted a house that was in a white neighborhood, they had to move it to the black. If you could buy it, and you could move it, <laughs> oh, man, buy some land. And I didn't know there. about that. So, because most people could, certainly didn't have the funds to build a house, yeah, some people did. They, you know, there were black businesses in there. Sure. <clears throat> so. But there was a, another oil boom in West Texas in the late 50s. And so, obviously, you get a lot of people move in. You got to have housing. Mm-hmm. So, there on the south side was where the land was cheaper and it was placed. They built some houses. Uh, in one development. Now, these houses were not... <laughs> Red line, so there was no oh, right. <laughs> no black people were going to get there anyway. So, yeah. so all of these houses were bought up. L- most of them with GI Bill, mm-hmm. FHA, mm-hmm. Uh, government assistance, government assistance. Yeah. Which I'm I'm not sure about the GI how that worked as far as uh, black veterans, but I can tell you that FHA loans were. Almost non-existent for 
African American. So GI Bill, because I looked up when I got it, was also restricted. There were some benefits allowed to black people, but no, no, no the good ones. <laughs> so housing, four year colleges, it was it was affirmative action for white yeah, people. Right. The largest, the largest scale affirmative action was the GI Bill being restricted mostly to white people. So they could get loans to get houses. Yeah. Okay. So when they had this oil boom on the south side, they built these houses. And, of course, what you need when people come in is schools. Hmm. So they built uh, at least one, they were called elementary school over there. And they built a house, a high school on the south side. Mm-hmm. Both segregated. These were not for uh, African American students. They were mm-hmm. for the whites that moved in to work in the uh, oil industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, but as happens, eventually <laughs> uh, the oil uh, it went bust. Right. So yeah. so what happened? All the people that moved in moved out and. Essentially, you had a couple of hundred or more houses mm. that were abandoned, completely empty. Right. All on the south side. And they couldn't get, <laughs> they couldn't get local people there to move in, right. of course, because they're on the wrong side of town. So that is the way that black people in my city got houses. good housing. Because we were the only one left that didn't have it. Right. Take it and uh, in particular, this was 1961. So, uh, when my family moved over, and my father actually was able to assume a GI loan okay. for the one house, because whoever had it had yeah. it. Yeah. So, he couldn't, he couldn't apply for it. No. Yeah. But, but he but could take over somebody else's. Took over yeah. So, you were 11 at that time. And the whole, I mean, the only people that moved in were uh, African Americans from the other parts of the uh South side mm-hmm. that had now this good housing. These were, you know, they're track houses. They yeah. were three bedroom. They were built on slab. Three bedroom, uh, one bath, kitchen, dining room, and uh, but it was way superior to anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to give you an idea of that, we had uh, prior to that, my father had uh, uh, procured, bought half a lot. Mm-hmm. Which is what they would sell to people then, because and so it was twenty five foot wide lot. And he bought one of these houses and had it moved in, but it was a just a two room house. Mm-hmm. So we had moved from where we were renting to this, but it was great because we owned it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he bought the, he bought the land and bought the house. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't very much put up on blocks. Yeah. Sometimes I think about that. I said, I don't know how we survived. And mm. in fact, my father had to build the bathroom onto the <laughs> side. Of, and I call it bathroom. Basically, it was just an inside out house. <laughs> it had a toilet. <laughs> I mean, it, it, oh, yeah. it had a, it had the basic toilet you have that, yeah. but that was all. Right. No, we had no running water in the house. Uh, had faucet outside. We had a uh, space heater for heat mm. and those things up on blocks. And uh, and sometimes in the winter can be very cold. Yeah. I don't know how we survived in that, huh. even with that. But yeah. uh, 
All I can say is God is good. Right. <laughs> so we moved from that to this great three-bedroom mm. house. We're inside, real bathroom, yeah. running water, heat. <laughs> oh, Actually, I had a carport <laughs> on it. <laughs> oh, man, it's high living. Paved streets, yeah. sidewalks. So you, I remember you saying this. You didn't have sidewalks in your oh, neighborhood. Oh, no, we barely had paved streets. Right. <laughs> in fact, not all the streets were paved where we were. And I remember that when we moved to the first, the house I just mentioned that my father got and bought there, I was in, right before I was in first grade, and when we moved there, it was a uh, dirt room. Mm. It was during that year that they actually paved the street there. But there were no sidewalks over there. It was just paved street. Anyway, so this was like, (laughs) (laughs) you can imagine what it was like. And... Because we were over there, and again, they had built this elementary school, but all the students were were gone, we were allowed to go to that school. It was blacks and Latinos, actually, because of where it was located, some of them. But there there were no white students. So you got the new school building. We got the new school yeah, building. Because it was in the neighborhood. It happened to be in the neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, yeah. interesting, it was named, uh, the name was, the school was named after the first Texas Ranger, whose name was Hayes. Okay. And uh, anyone that's seen the, uh, what's the show that uh, comes on with? I don't remember. The, anyway, Texas Walk, uh, Walker. Uh, Walker, Texas, Texas Ranger. Ranger. <laughs> They've probably mentioned that on that. Okay. But it's so. Uh, <laughs> But here's the other catch about that is, so we were there, so it was, uh, and and so what I say, maybe you, you might call that integrated. Latinos and blacks, maybe. Uh, but, uh, and of course, all of the teachers were white. Oh, okay. There, because, you know, only the African-American teachers were only at the African-American school. That's oh, what okay. they were hired yeah, for, so right. there's none there. But, uh, but I have to do, uh, that was one of the, uh, it was really a good experience because better school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the first time that we had uh, expanded school things like where, where I come from, uh, you know, football is big in yeah. Texas. We didn't have, uh, we had, we played, there were two black elementary mm-hmm. schools, so we sort of played. Oh, like yeah, each other flag football. Right. We go to Hayes Elementary. We we get to we get to play what all Texas does: tackle, tackle football, football yeah. with the equipment provided. Because all the equipment was still there. Yeah. So we got all yeah. the equipment there. We had a gym. <laughs> we had a cafeteria, which we didn't have at our other school, right. <laughs> and all these things. And uh, because we were the only. They had to use it. It was either that or shut it down. And because so, all the white people had left town yes, because of the oil. left that part of town. Yeah. There was, it was left to us. So, However, right outside of there, there was a certain part of town, and I don't know, some type of enclave where there were some uh, white people that lived. Mm-hmm. And, in, and if you know anything about uh, Texas, maybe it's like a, schools are county-based. Okay. So, the school district is a county, not a city. It's a county. So that so they were lived, even though they're a city, they part of the school system. 
they would bus them past our school to the white school. So, Which is yeah. why I was always, I would always laugh when people would tell me about what happened with bus. And I said, yeah. Right. You know, you watched them. Yeah, tell that to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> I, know what it, I yeah. know what it means. I know what it is. You watched them drive past you. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they did. So that. busing was a way to take white kids who were not close enough to the school they wanted to go to. You provide buses to transport them past their local school. If it was not a, a white school. school. Yeah. Yeah. To enforce segregation, but by another name, though. You wouldn't call it segregation. No. You'd call you call it busing. Yeah. That's yeah. what you call it. Yeah. And so, uh, so that, so, and again, they had the nice state of the art junior high school over there. Mm. I mean, it was really right. everything that you could ask for, they had. Yeah. And, uh, so, so from 1961 to 1963, fifth and sixth grade, I went to school there. After sixth grade, I had to go to the segregated black school because mm. high school, junior high, high school yeah. was awesome. And the interesting thing is that about that is they, and I don't know why this happened. The schools were either uh, separated, sort of black white. Mm-hmm. Latinos went to school with whites. Hmm. Blacks went to school with blacks, <laughs> and and this is a this I always uh, <laughs> I think about this, and it, every time I think about it, I, I chuckle. In the town where where our school was, the high school, junior high, and one of the elementary schools were on one campus. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was road that divided this from another from another area and this road went from dead end on one end at a street and on the other and the only reason that road that street existed was to separate this from another campus another elementary school next door two elementary schools were within uh one street from one. Right. The only separation was a, the, the only separate street, street, and that's where ends. the that's where the Latino students went. So they right. separated us from that. Yeah. Well, so I think, especially white people, don't think about this. We often talk, sort of think of minorities. Yes. But in America, it's more complicated than that because of the long history. Well, so, slavery was made a difference because Latinos weren't slaves. Right. And so there was no systemic, long, hundreds of years of effort to distinguish between Latinos and whites, like there was between black and white. So practically in the 60s, I mean, this is not that long ago, there was special effort to separate white from black. And it sounds like maybe if Latino, if there was, you know, they could go to school in a segregated school with black students, but they could also go with white students. And no. (laughs) <laughs> oh, they couldn't go with white students. No, there was blacks. The school for blacks were for blacks. No, I'm saying Latinos. Could they go to school with whites? No. Okay. They would not. They would not allow you to register to go. You would have to go to the other school. Okay. And that's just the. I mean, that's the way it was. Yeah. It was and so, so in in a certain sense, some of the elementary schools were only Latino because of where they might be. Yeah. But as you get, uh, you know, you get up this. There's more consolidation with uh, the schools. And so uh, 
it was uh, the all-black school, mm. and then there was the other. Okay. <laughs> and where everybody else went. Right. Okay. So that that existed until... So here's the thing. <laughs> what I was getting point I get to put. When we were in... Uh, when in sixth grade, every... You're going to a high, you're going to a junior high school. So they would have a special day where you would go to the school that you were, the junior high school that you would be going in. Sort mm-hmm. of give you an idea of what's there. And then, well, we were in the school, there were blacks and Latinos, right? Mm-hmm. So on the day that we were going to the junior high, they bring separate buses for us. <laughs> so the students you're going, you're going to school with now, you get divided with the blacks Separate, and the Latinos yeah. because you're going to Egypt. This is 1963. So from 1963 to 1960, 7th, 8th, and 9th mm-hmm. grade, went to the all blacks. 1966 is when they finally integrated, or let me tell you, desegregated is probably a better yeah, term. Right, right, right. <laughs> desegregated. Um, so when that occurred, uh, <laughs> we went, now we're going to the uh, desegregated integrated high school. And actually at that point, because of where it is on the south side, the there would be black students, Latinos, and whites mm-hmm. all in the same school, at least until they moved out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, so that's important. We went from, you know, going to school with Latinos to all black and then going to, and that was 1966. And, and, you know, so this is 12 years after we were supposed to integrate schools with all deliberate speed. Right. (laughs) By federal law. Definitely. Yeah. 12 years. And uh, also, when I was thinking about this, I was doing a little, uh, Kate, Occasionally, I go back to uh, Odessa because we have a family reunion held there every okay. year. And when I can, I go back and make it. And uh, I was I was just reading something recently. I forgot or didn't know that when the uh, uh, when the case of Brown versus the Board of Education was settled, uh, there was a lot of resistance. In the well, almost exclusively in the South, even though it was, it, which is one reason they wanted to be a unanimous decision, right? Not to give any. Well, it turns out that who led the fight in Texas was the uh, Texas Attorney General, whose name was John Ben Shepherd. Hmm. And every time I go back to that's uh, it. I have to go down John Ben Shepherd Boulevard. <laughs> he led the fight against desegregation. Against desegregation. But he still has a street named after him. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't. <laughs> Why not, right? It wasn't there when it. And this street was named recently, as far as. I mean, when I say recently, maybe within the past 25, 20, 25 years. Well, after. So in our after life, I even in my moved, lifetime. Yeah. So, so, in other words, they didn't really care that much. Fighting for segregation wasn't bad enough to keep you from being honored with the no. street named after you. No. In, in this city. So you, I think, for me, it was a struggle. 
with all of this stuff was just a long time ago. It's really like the hazy past. But for you, it's your life. It's my life. And it's only one generation for us. Yeah. Like, it's not sort of great-great-grandfather telling us about, <laughs> like, you're not even 70 yet. And so, so a lot of pastors listen to this. If you have black members in your church who are over 60, this is their life. This, this is how they were raised. This is how they grew up, especially in the South. I remember you told me one story about uh, the school, the, the library, uh, the two libraries. You, remember, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So how old were you with that? Uh, I must have been. When I first really, I, it was I was five or six or sometime in that when I really got interested in reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, Oh, before we get into that, to finish your life out, you then went to college in Texas? Yes. I went to... Uh, I went uh, first three years of college in Texas. I actually went to three different <laughs> colleges. I went to uh, first year. I went to North Texas State, which is now known as the University of North Texas. I went to our local junior college, which was Odessa College, and then I went uh, third year to Texas Tech in Lubbock. Mm-hmm. And after that, went to California to MIT. Cal Poly. Cal Poly. And got a degree in electrical engineering? Yes. Just like you wanted in eighth grade. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then when did you move out to Maryland? 1974. Was that right? That been, uh, right after college? Yeah. Or, or yeah, right after college. Uh, it actually t- it took me five years to get through college, mainly because I went to these different schools. And right. <laughs> but <clears throat> it take the time, so. So, yeah, and that's how I got to Maryland, 1974, okay. been here. And, uh, which, uh, yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> One story at a time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you, you started love reading. Yeah, and so, uh, my mother had got me taught going, even though she didn't finish high school, mm-hmm. my mother taught me to start reading and write before I ever started elementary school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I was, I became a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. And it turns out we had about, uh, when I was, uh, five, maybe five, uh, we got our first library. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, aside from, I assume they had one at the school, but right. public library, because they built a park on our side of the school and adjacent to that they built a library, which was, uh, uh, of course, a limited number of books. And I think about it, it was probably the, about the size of the average person's living room. <laughs> oh, so this will be on the south side in the, the black oh, part yeah. of town. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so, but I had, I remember this, that we go downtown, you had to go downtown to get everything mm-hmm. because there was basically limited stuff on the south side. And... Because my father would be going to work taking car, we would take a taxi cab mm-hmm. or something. And I can remember one time we were down there, and I look and see this building mm-hmm. where, and I see these kids going, and they all have books going mm-hmm. in. Yeah. And so I asked, well, what is that all about? She said, oh, that's the library. Oh, my <laughs> eyes light up, <laughs> And she quickly tells me, you can't go there. Hmm. 
So that's for the white students, or white, not us. We have mm-hmm. it, so. Uh, that's stuck in the... <laughs> so all these decades later, that is a profound moment in your life. Oh, yeah. And I think white people don't realize that's like the that you carry that with you the rest of your life. Yeah. One way or the other. One way or the other. Um, you don't just get over it. When you're told that's the big nice library is for the white kids. You go to this little library. And that's the way America wants it. Yes. <laughs> you, you can't not be a different kind of person. And you can't grow up in a different kind of life than white people. Like You, you just can't. There's no way that you can grow up in a city and in a country where those two buildings exist. And not have two different kind of existences. And when you look back at white accounts, so like fundamentalism basically started in Texas. So I'm very familiar with the narratives from white preachers. And you can just tell how they talk about stuff. It's just different. How they talk about racism, how they talk about uh, the civil rights movement. And it's because they lived in a different world. In a world with nice houses and nice schools and nice libraries. But I think it's more than that. It's the, the... you must have had some thought at that time of, of why. Why don't what? Yes. Why do white kids get a big library and we don't? And so you lived in Texas, California, Maryland. Yes. I imagine it wasn't just Odessa, Texas, that you ever experienced any difference being black. No. So it's not sort of you grew up in this little tiny backwards town, but once you got into the rest of America, everything was better. No, no, no. It, it, it's, uh, things got better as they got older, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. America. There's uh, definitely been progress made. Progress. Yeah. So there's no denying that. So, yeah. but the, uh, the vestiges are everywhere. Mm. And you can't, uh, and you say, I mean, if you're, if you're grew up like it, you're sensitive to that. I mean, yeah. you, and by that, I mean, you see, Things that you know mm-hmm. where it's coming from. Uh, so so that would be, would that have been the f- first time you remember being different? Like racially, like the race Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one because yeah. uh, when things are so normalized, yeah. you don't tend to think. Uh, uh, Maybe that deeply as a kid, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. you you know there's difference, but mm-hmm. but that's probably you know, yeah. Your mother had to explain to you, yeah, it, yeah. unless someone actually uh, and uh, tells you that you probably will run up into this and it'd be like a knock in the face sort of thing. Right. But if he gets explained sort of thing, and you, then you you're expecting it. One yeah. way of looking at it, and uh, and like I say, when you get your plan, you're doing all these things. Mm-hmm. So your your life is not. It only later that you learn this, and and you see the you first see it how your parents responded mm-hmm. to things, how or the effect that it may have had on mm-hmm. your parents, therefore on you. Uh, right. Like I said, my. Uh, my father had aspirations to be a bricklayer, could never get mm-hmm. a job like that. And it was just impossible. Nobody's going to hire him right. to do that. That's skill. All you could do was, you know, 
be the guy that mixed the mortar, mm-hmm. carried it up <laughs> the scaffold, right, and which was basically back breaking work. Yeah. And and I think I mentioned this one time. My when I was a teenager, my father took and he did this for. I do remember from my older brother I mean, separately, and I remember the time I went to work with him one day, mm-hmm. and. And with a purpose, I think he had in mind. But I saw mm. the hard work that he had to right. do there, and never, never said, uh, you know, he let it speak for itself. Right. <laughs> and I yeah. and I I understood what he was doing, and uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember you telling me a story about when you bought a car. Oh, in your, when I was in, co- okay. you're in college, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is this is a eye opening. Like you'd have to experience this to get this. Yeah. So, so uh, my first year of college, and uh, my father was working at this place at this time. It's called uh, a, uh, basically a company that uh, uh, took materials out to the oil well where they're drilling mm-hmm. whatever they use some chemicals some of whatever type of stuff they needed and drove a truck so at the warehouse it would they get it in their request they load a truck flatbed trucks and they would take it out to the um oil field dump it come back sort of thing so that's where so he got me a summer job with the company and because they would always hire some teenagers to do it, or let me tell you, they would hire college students doing the, uh, most of the college students doing the uh, summer, giving summer job. So I, he got me on the job. I was the only, uh, um, black college student there. There was four or five, maybe five, six others. And, uh, one of them was, uh, uh, one of the sons of one of the other workers there who was, uh, he's a, he's a white guy and he was what they call a mud engineer, the guy that worked in there. He was the one that went out to the oil fields and, uh, determined what they needed and placed the orders and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Where his son worked there and he was, got a job there and he also was a nighttime dispatcher. So we got to know one another, mm-hmm. uh, Close. He was going to college at the local uh, junior college. We were the same age. Right. Turns out that we had played football against one another back <laughs> in the fifth or sixth grade when I was going to that oh, other school. Oh, when you cool, yeah. <laughs> we didn't know it. <laughs> right. But so we got to be what I would call fairly good friends. Yeah. So there was a, so that was, uh, so we worked together about it. Uh, I don't know if it's that summer or the next summer when we did this. We decided we were going to get our commercial licenses so we could drive some of the trucks and yeah. take some of these uh, <clears throat> uh, big orders and make a little more money in addition to doing that. So we both did. We did this together. So we were pretty close friends at, because the thing was, he was married. Mm. <laughs> Why? But he invited me to his, uh, they lived in a trailer, but, and his wife invited me there. I went yeah. there. 
and when we were going, we were going to the same school after that, which mm-hmm. was going to be Texas Tech. Okay. So we had to go up there for an orientation, or so we even went up there together. Uh, and he showed me where he was going to be living and all all this. So it was, you know, yeah, close. we spent pretty close. Well, during that <clears throat> summer, because I was going to be going up there and. While I, w- I wouldn't be commuting every day, mm-hmm. I would be coming back and forth to uh, home at least a couple of times a month or maybe even three times a month because 150 miles away. You know? So I had this, I had to, I had a car at that time going back and forth to college. And remember, it's a 1961 Chevy. Now he had a 1966 Malibu. This is an, 1970? So fairly 71. Yeah. Which he had gotten new while he was in high school. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, because I was going up there, my father decided I needed another car, a better car. So, one day he comes home with this uh, 1965 Chevy, right? And he says, uh, What do you think about this car? He says, What do you think? (laughs) Great. So, well, let's upgrade. Why don't you get this car and get to you? So, so we were going to get a, I don't know, I guess he was going to get a loan for it. So we went up to the bank, and <laughs> this time, I remember this. And they were going through this stuff about giving us a hard time about right. the loan. And, and so my father says to me, he says, why don't you go over there and check and see how much money you got in your account and how much I got in my account? <laughs> Sort of shocked him. Right, yeah, yeah. So I went over there and he said, okay, he said, yeah, he said, we got enough paper. He said, okay, don't worry about it. He's left. So we paid cash for mm-hmm. the car. <laughs> anyway, so I started driving this work, not thinking anything about it. But then one evening, uh, while I, for some reason, I had to come up and uh, where he was working, my friend working, mm-hmm. he was dispatched. He comes out of there. And he sees me and he says, oh, is that your car? Now, this was a 1965 Chevy. Mm-hmm. So, and I says, y- yes. And I detected his whole countenance change. Mm-hmm. It was, and I was kind of shocked. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, a, you know, I've, <laughs> some people say, how do you know what he's saying? Well... I, at this point, I was, I was almost twenty-one years old, yeah. and I've been around, so I know what the look is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. anybody can t- tell me you well, you don't know. I know, yeah, <laughs> and I knew that that, and that was when our relationship sort of went cold and started going down, mm. and I was it bothered me. I was very mm-hmm. disappointed. I really because. He was a friend. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I remember that after we started going to, uh, well, when I started going to school, college up there, I had rented a room. And when I went up there, I went over to where he was, uh, where he was living. I tried to see him. He wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Tried to get in contact. And I never could after mm-hmm. that. Never. So he was fine being friends. When his car was much nicer than yours, but when you showed up with something equal to his, do you think he knew before that moment 
that there was going to be a, that there would have been a problem? Like, was it unconscious for him until he was confronted with it? Yeah, I think it was. So he wouldn't I, have even realized that, that was going to happen. I no, I, I, uh, I think it was. It was not in the pictures long, you know, it was not something that came up as issue yeah. because we just, were just, uh, put it this way, we was just us in the room. Mm. Then when something else comes in the room, oh, there's okay. a problem. Right. <laughs> okay. And I don't think, uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't think he was conscious. Right. It was just. You know, and th- and that's what I think a lot of people don't see is that when you grow up with, it's not just people don't just aren't just born with these things about it. Right, you you grow up with this, and it becomes normal. Yeah. It's normal to be, uh, and I'll just say it's normal to be a white supremacist. <laughs> Now, people don't want to hear that. Sure. Because, and I'm not talking racist. And right, right. I'm not talking people are racist. I'm just saying that in America, you're taught that if you're white, you're superior to people of color. They're yeah. inferior. So you're not talking about the KKK? No, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about people that's going to firebomb. I'm not even talking about people that are going to uh, call you derogatory names. Right. They can be friendly to you. They can be friends with you. Yeah. But there's this idea that white people are better. Yes. That, yeah. And as I've said to you before, lest anybody think I'm being racist with that statement, <laughs> not all white supremacists are white. I've met plenty of black people that are yeah. white supremacists as well as Latino. Yeah. They just... It's an ideology. Except, yeah, they just accept that. That's the way the world is. It's an ideology that anyone can hold. Yeah. And it, yeah. And in America, if you're white, you're better. Yeah. Now, you know, it may be, they may not think that's, they're inherently better. Right. But positionally, right. you are. And yeah. what you can do, who you are, what's yeah. accepted, what you're excused of. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes, yeah. So in essence, it's true, right, to a certain extent. Yeah, and I think we miss that because so much progress has been made in yeah. the past few decades. That, but in your lifetime, you remember when there was a lot of effort to make it very clear yeah. that there was a difference between white and black people. We're, we'll build a street with no purpose other yeah. than to tell people white people are better than black people. Yeah. And then white people can be nice, they can be caring, they can be helpful, they can be friends, as long as everyone understands. And understands your position. And as long as no one crosses the road, there's no need for problems. Yeah. Uh, so before we run out of time, we were talking about this just this week, about the black church. Yes. So you said growing up, there was a black church within walking distance of everyone's house. Yes. No matter where you were. You know where you why? Baptist church. A Baptist church. Uh, black, black Baptist. Baptist church. Yes. Uh, so that was Baptist history includes black history. It's, it's you can't separate the two. So what was what was that like growing up? How what would how did you relate to the church growing up? Uh it was part of your life. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we were uh, uh you know the uh, for one thing in black community preachers were held in high esteem because they were 
you know, uh, a lot of them were the more, aside from teachers, they were the yeah. more educated, right. the more uh, high, and uh, and of course the uh, the moral component of right. that. They were, moral leaders. Yeah, yeah. And Which so, is why Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist preacher, yeah. and it was natural for him to become a it civic was leader, natural. a moral leader. Yeah, yeah. Whenever there were any issues or problems, you you would uh, uh, look to. Mm-hmm. The church, in essence, the preacher yeah. would uh, would take a lead in things. So mm-hmm. that was, and we were uh, uh, it was just part of our life. That's where we went. Right. And the uh, well, you know, you probably know this about me. We would uh, we would go to church. When we went to church, we always dressed up. Right. Church clothes. <laughs> church. We had the church clothes. Yeah. And uh, so. Uh, and that's part of me even now. Yeah, right? you still wear, you still, so everyone thinks I'm a liberal. You still wear a suit. Yes. Every service. Yeah. yeah. Because that's the way that's I grew right, up. Yeah. That part, that's part always of your tradition. been a part. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't, no, I didn't see a need to change. Sure. And, you know, I, yeah. it's, and I don't, I don't judge anybody <laughs> one right. way or other. You know, yeah. you wear a suit. That, 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 you don't. Hey, right. <laughs> that's not, that's not the issue or problem with me. But that was, uh, another thing is, and, uh, and this may be, this may be truth generationally, mm. maybe than anything else. When everyone, when I was growing up, attended the same service. Kids from, right. From newborns. Yeah. All that So you all in the same. We didn't have the separate as such as uh, children's church. Yeah, with Sunday school we did, but not yeah. not not the main church service, which mm-hmm. was. Uh, and it may be the same for uh, uh, white churches <laughs> yeah. at that time. The other thing about this is that we had, uh, because of the relationship between the black community and white, when uh, we. It was not unusual when there was a funeral mm-hmm. to have whites attend. Mm. That never happened the other way. The other way around. Yeah. So in, we, we, you know, I remember when my <clears throat> my father worked for uh, this uh, worked for this uh, uh, local guy who was sort of in independent mm-hmm. contractor, and uh, so he was the company. Yeah, my father worked for him. We've uh, we got a Sunday paper. This is how my father found out. Mm-hmm. Sunday paper on the might been on the front page said that he had been killed in a diving accident. Hmm. <laughs> that's how my that's how my father found, he found out. Found out in the newspaper. Crazy work. He wasn't invited to the funeral. Yeah, he wasn't invited to the funeral. Didn't know about it. Uh, so, uh, so why didn't you just? If you're a Baptist, why didn't you go to the White Baptist Church? Uh, I mean, I know, but... It's too far away, I guess. It's too far away. If your family showed up in the White Church, what, what do you think would have happened? Uh, I hate to think. I, Good Christian white people, fundamentally, well, independent Baptists, probably. Oh, they've, been, they, they've probably been asking me... What I'm, what I come there for? Yeah, and if you wanted to join, <laughs> you know, it made me think about it, when you just asked that question. Remember, you, 
when we were going through the book and they uh there was in this about that when people ask black people if there is still racism in america yes and what always happens when they you always them, laugh yeah so this is a sociology i don't know if you remember this every time a white person asks a black person is there still racism the, the answer is always just the black person just laughs and so i tested it on you yeah <laughs> when you didn't know i was going to do it but i asked you the same question and you just laughed. <laughs> and it's pretty con- – so if you're listening and if you have a black friend, and this is how you know if they're a black friend or not, um, just because they hang out with you and put up with whatever, ask them, does racism still exist? And if they – they'll just laugh because it's so obvious. <laughs> Obviously, you were not allowed to join the white church. So when people say, why was there a black church? Yes. Well, if you wanted to go to a Baptist church and you were yeah. black, you had to have a black yeah. church. Or you couldn't go to church. No, there was no way. You, yeah, and 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 because and in our town and in the town next of uh, what I call the uh, metroplex of Midland, Odessa, which yeah. were two comparable towns there, and between they were there was the largest concentration of people between Fort Worth and yeah. uh, El Paso. So long distance. Uh, each one of the first Baptist church of Odessa. First Baptist Church of Midland. Mm-hmm. They were all on TV on mm-hmm. Sunday, right, Sunday yeah. morning. Eleven o'clock service was broadcast. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure they didn't want any black faces showing up that broadcast. <laughs> Run the image. <laughs> so yeah, and yeah. Uh, now here's an interesting question, which I'm sure never crossed anybody's mind at the time. If a white family had wanted to join a black church. No, I'd, what would it like? Why wouldn't no, that have been an option? It, why, why why wasn't it an option at the time? It was an option if you wanted to. So why wasn't it? Then? Why did it happen? Because the culture didn't allow it. It wasn't. Was it because black people didn't want white people? Around? Oh no, no, that would. You would welcome. Yeah, you could. Well, if you wanted to come there and join, you would have been. So in your church where to. you grew up, yeah. it was all black. Yeah, but you would have been fine with a white family oh yeah everybody would so why didn't they well (laughs) they didn't want to (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's a rhetorical yeah obviously so the real question is why didn't they want to that's what we need to figure out Uh, i think we have answers for it but that's the kind of wasn't because it was too far but i think our listeners need to think about what did it what did america created an entire city, entire region, entire country where you would have been welcome, but you didn't want to go to a Baptist church, a like-minded Baptist church, conservative, right? Yeah. You, oh, you're yeah. You're conservative. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're so, you, I remember telling me, you're so conservative that people thought you were like holiness. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like super yeah. conservative. Uh, so it was something else going on. It was that they didn't want to be a member there. And it's funny because I think a lot of white people now think they're not welcome in black churches they don't they don't i know yeah. i personally when i first started t- visiting black churches there was a feeling of like do they want am i welcome now if you ever go to a black church that notion is immediately dispelled when everyone greets everybody gives you hugs you meet the pastor black churches are the most welcoming churches that i've ever been to um but they develop differently i, I told my wife First time she attended, I said, you'll be more welcome here than any white church you ever attend. And and it's not 
why is it that way? And I think it's because the way you grew up, you weren't welcome anywhere else in your city. Right. But your church, you were welcome. welcome. And so you knew the value of being in a place where you were unconditionally welcomed. Because when you went to school or when you crossed the street or you went to the library, you weren't getting any of that. But when you went to church, and I think the Baptist faith and Christianity in particular developed this idea of love your neighbor. And we can see how that's not working in society, but we're going to make it work at church. So it, one of the things that early conversation we had, I wasn't quite as uh, woke back then. <laughs> but this is one of the things that changed, changed me about that. We were talking about Michael Brown had just been shot in, um, not St. Louis, but... Yeah, it was, it was close to St. Louis. Outside, outside St. Louis. Louis. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he'd been shot, and there was a lot of debate about why, whose fault was it, and do you remember what you said? What bothered you the most about that? I'm not sure. You said, because um, the, the facts hadn't come out yet, and you said what bothered you the most was they left him laying oh, there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. it was uh, the ultimate. You're worthless. Yeah. Even if he was, even if he was guilty, that wasn't the point because you didn't know at the time. No. It was that they left his body there for four hours, hours uncovered. Yeah. And you weren't. It was just two of us talking. It wasn't like we were in front of church yeah. or we weren't on CNN. You had. No, we'd already been. You're already yeah. a member of the church. Yeah. It, there was no reason for you to play a political game. But it just bothered you that yes. he was treated like that. Yeah, yeah. But when you when you hear the story of your life, you're just saying, oh, here it is again. Mm-hmm. Can't go to the library. Can't go to the school. Can't get the houses. Can't go to the church. Can't have the same car. And now can't even be treated respectfully. Which, we're out of time now. The last point is this idea of individualism. So you, growing up black, didn't have the luxury yeah. of being an individual. No. You were a black. You were black first. And I don't think a lot of white people understand that that's happening, that you're always seen through the lens of the group. Right. So I'm always judged by what right. people perceive black people are. Right. So when you saw Michael Brown there, he wasn't just a, another person. No. You identified with him because that was your life is you will be identified with him. And so oh, you yeah. did identify with yeah. him. And I think white Christians have missed that to a large degree because they've never had to be, they've never been in a group where they had to survive, where they've been judged because of anything. But you, your story is no one knew you before you went to the school, but they still didn't let you in the school. Right. They didn't need to know you. They didn't check your scores, they didn't check your grades. It was because you were black. And so you're in this communal group. But then I think in, I think it'd be a good thing in a, in a Christian setting of understanding the idea of a communal group of, of identification with other people, which is what Jesus says to do. He says you're supposed to. So Good Samaritan, which is similar yeah. to Michael Brown. When you saw Michael Brown, you identified with him, yeah. laying on the street, beaten, killed, bleeding. And Jesus' the story of the Good Samaritan is when the Good Samaritan saw the beaten man, no connection. No con- so why do you identify with him? The whole point was that the Good Samaritan is Jesus, and he loved the man. He didn't need to know him. And so he helped him. My reaction at the time, and many white people, was, well, wait for the facts. Wait yeah. for the whole story yeah. to come out. Don't make any judgment. Just sort of stay removed. Sort of sort of put up a wall. Don't make any commitments. 
until you know the whole story. But that's sort of the privilege of individualism is I can live my life just the same as it's always been, no matter what happens to people anywhere else. And it's very unchristian, I think. It's very unloving. And, you know, uh, I was just thinking about this when I was looking at the Reviewing about the uh, Brown versus Board of Education, Mm -hmm. I was thinking, uh, reading what happened in some of the the resistance, I was thinking, what if uh, and and I was limited to independent Baptist, what if they had said, okay, now in the school, let's let us, Mm -hmm. instead of establishing Exclusive schools for white. Let's start schools where we have the races together. Since we yeah. we know the wider community may not lo- yeah. do this, but we're Christian. We're Christians, and that the opposite. It would have been great if that it, had w- it would have been a testimony to the gospel. gospel. Instead, the opposite happened, happened. and Christian schools Christian were started for whites only. So I think Christians have white Christians have a burden, should have a burden, to undo what their Christian predecessors have done. When you put Baptist on, on your name and you're yeah. white, you can't pretend that there were no white Baptists before you. Right. You can't. you can't pretend like that. It's it's You're not, you can't pretend like nothing ever happened before your church showed up. Or in some cases, before you showed up, because your church might have been racist before you showed up. Uh, it just doesn't just disappear into the past. And many people are over 60 yeah, and remember these things, remember segregation. And so, uh, yeah, it's the Christian duty to love their neighbor and to set an example in loving your neighbor. And no better way to love your neighbor is than when the world doesn't love the neighbor and has created artificial distinctions like race, black and white are totally artificial made up. Christians are like, I don't see that in the Bible. So we're going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Well, be careful there. Colorblindness is not the answer. So that's another thing which, listen to you, like you can't pretend like you're not black. Right. That's silly to be like, I'm I'm not going to see black. Like you're just, nobody has any color anymore. You're just a person. Yeah, that's one thing that really disturbs me. Good intention people say, I don't see color. Well, you should. Yeah. What you should not do is reject people because of color. Yeah, Yeah, and I think... You should. I think we're raised that way. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying I have a black friend, right? If you really, if you really have a black friend, friend. (laughs) we're raised to not see color as a way to be equal, 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 right? And I think it's a good intention. Yes, but but what happens is you pretend like your life is the same as my life, and like like, we all grew up the same. What's the problem? Yeah. (laughs) Why do you keep on bringing up race? Yeah. Instead of saying, let's just learn from your experience, which is different than mine, much different, and not pretend like you're not black, because you being black in America profoundly it changed your life. life. And it didn't stop changing your life in 1968 or 1972 or whenever the supposed racism was, in, was deleted from American history. Like, I always want to ask people, like, when was racism removed from America? Like, which, which decade was it? <laughs> was it wasn't the that. 70s. Was it the 80s? Was it the 90s? Well, this is for anyone that out there that's listening that uh, have defended what our president said in Charlottesville. 
And I'll yeah. tell you why I say that. In 1953, when Dwight Eisenhower, president, selected Earl Warren as chief justice of the court, no relation to me. <laughs> yeah, <it's> John Warren. <laughs> you don't have the same name. Yeah. He invited him to a dinner, and he uh, told him about, uh, he says, the, he says, these people, meaning Southern white, mm-hmm. are good people. Mm-hmm. They just don't want to see their little girls have to sit next to some overgrown Negro. Mm. Doesn't that sound like uh, what Donald Trump said? Now, when it's, that's a harsh. When people hear that, they see the harshness. Uh, right. But when the president says they're good people on both sides, yes. that's the same statement. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so if you... So be sensitive to that. And I'm talking to Christians about yes, this. Yes, not politicians, not, not Americans, politicians. Christians. Just don't excuse that type of stuff. Say, right. well, when there's a white supremacy rally, yeah. there are not good people on both sides. No, no. You could say there's bad people on both, both sides side. if you want to be you know, yeah. theologically correct. And uh, I would have cer- no problem with <laughs> that. Sure, that yeah, bad yeah. People. But certainly on the side that says white people are better. Yeah. It's not the good side. No. Whatever we know about history, that's not the good side. Uh, but it's the side you identify with often if you're white. And so it's easy to see past the mistakes. John R. Rice said the same thing uh, in the 50s. And he said, the problem in America is that the government and northerners inserted themselves into southern life. If they had just let the good, honest people of the south work it out for themselves, there wouldn't have been a problem. Because Rice had this high regard for his kinsmen, white Southerners, and he felt like they were good people uh, and that they would fix the problem themselves. That was in the 40s and 50s. People were being lynched. He preached yeah. on the spot where someone had been lynched the year before. I'm sorry, like, you're, you're not going to figure it out. You're not good people trying to work it out. So that language hasn't changged, and that's what you said with, yeah, with the, Eisenhower the, the, and Warren. And we need to recognize the, the language yeah. of... Uh, that type of language that yeah. uh, uh, treats uh, people of color as inferior and whites as superior mm-hmm. hasn't changed. Because, you know, like others, well, the only problem, they just don't want to be. Mm. And, and that's saying that people of color are inferior, yeah. that they're overgrown, Negro, <laughs> that yep. they're going to do something like yeah. no moral uh, compass no, yeah. and nothing like are sitting next to some mm-hmm. as a danger and yeah. and they blow this up some overgrown mm-hmm. the little white girls mm-hmm. sitting next yeah, to the, the innocent old. yeah it, it's yeah ongoing uh, uh stereotypes yeah and that's what our president did to that yeah saying oh well they're just defending the statue yeah that's all they're doing <laughs> is just defending Preserve history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a historian, they're ignoring history. They're preserving a, a side of history and ignoring the other side. And they're preserving the side that makes them look good and ignoring the side that killed, murdered, raped, uh, created whole systems to protect them. And that's not a, I think it's, it's not a political position. No. For, it's love your neighbor uh, as yourself. No. Don't say things that make other people think less of them. And don't defend groups that demean people. That's just Christianity. 
And I think a lot of people, especially white people, well, I say mostly white people, they don't have honest conversations with black people. No. Uh, maybe because they've never, when you grow up in a white dominated society, like independent Baptist, like other groups, you often don't have any black friends. No. Not, not by choice, but because of whatever happened, you just went to, and this is your friends. And so you never have honest conversations. And so you don't know what you don't know. But you've already been trained by white people. Because of your parents, your friends, your family. And so you're getting one side of American history. And I found there's nothing to be afraid of learning about the past. <laughs> yeah, nothing. And it's not going to make you into a liberal. Yeah, a little bit of a liberal. Um, yeah, learning facts and talking to people that are different from you does not make you a liberal. All right, and if it does, I guess then we yeah, should all want to be liberals be. by learning. Yeah, so the, the the way forward is to love people, and loving people means listening to them and empathizing and realizing that you may have grown up differently as a whole than other people. And when, when you grow up a certain way, you hear certain things and you're used to them. You can identify them. But if you grew up in Odessa, Texas in the 60s, you hear a different side of things. And so when Donald Trump speaks up and says, good people on both sides, that wasn't the first time you'd heard that. No. <laughs> it was the first time I'd heard it. Um, as a white 36-year-old, but fairly well-educated, I'd never really heard that phrase before. So it really didn't trigger me. Because I just thought, like, well, I mean, in the sense of, like, well, I don't know. The facts bothered me. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know about the word. But when you heard it, you said, oh, I've heard this before. No. It's familiar. It's a familiar phrase, and it's never used by civil rights activists. <laughs> it's used by people propping up uh, systems that separate people and stereotype people. Just one other thing I want to share, and I might have, uh, I think I've shared this with you before, a uh, uh, year or two ago that uh, there was a talk given in... Uh, Crawford, the Crawford Library, mm -hmm. by uh, someone that had written a book. He Crawford. worked at the Navy Academy. Crawford's just <clears throat> 10 the, minutes from us. Yeah, the, uh, it was called the Golden... It was about the first uh, uh, black uh, officers mm. that went in the Navy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it was going to be... Uh, I actually thought it was going to be an African American guy, and I go there, and it's 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 a white guy that works right. it, and and uh, he gave an excellent talk about right this, and he very much knew. And after we had conversations there, and in fact, there was some uh, people related to some of these officers that mm, right. attended, and so I asked him. I said. Uh, I heard what you were saying and how you were passionate about that. Right. How did you come to <laughs> do this and what prompted you? Yeah. And he told me something um, very interesting. He said that is, I think he may say, he says his father was a preacher and he may have said Baptist preacher. Mm -hmm. And he recalled him uh, <clears throat> preaching sermons about. Uh, Civil rights, but mm -hmm. 
And he says that he lost people in his church because of that. Mm. But he stood by it saying mm. that, yeah. you know, we have to be accepting all people. And he said that's the way he grew up. Mm. So he actually preached the sermons about that. Hmm. And so it must have been, must have said he was Baptist because that was yeah, <laughs> never yeah. heard that. <laughs> and, 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 uh, I told him, wow, I said, you know, that's the second preacher I know that preached from the pulpit about that. <laughs> and I said, he along with our preacher. And I was mm, telling you, I appreciate that. <laughs> and I said, so uh, <laughs> we took picture and it was great. Yeah. It was, it was uh, but that's what he said. He said that he yeah. grew up that and that was yeah. what he knew. And he, it was a way of honoring his father yeah. even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, people sometimes ask me like, why do you talk about this all the time? Hey, honestly, because how do you pastor people who are black and not know about what they're doing? Like what they, it's not like I'm special. Like, Oh, I'm like Martin Luther King. It's like, no, I just stood up and looked at the people. I said, here are the people I'm responsible for. It's not that many of them. Some of them aren't white. I'm white. How do I pastor them? And I had no idea like what to do. <laughs> uh, so just like sometimes I think people feel like you have to go to like Howard University yeah, or, you know, and learn all. It's like, no, you just stay after church, find the black person who's willing to answer your questions and just ask them a bunch of questions and listen and then read some books and just basically, I mean, I hate to put it bluntly, just do your job. As a pastor, just do your job. Do what the Bible tells you to do. You're not special. No. And if you don't have any black people in your church, it's probably because your church is not reaching out to them or doesn't want them there. Or, or didn't in the past and has a reputation. That's a lot of times what happens is you have a reputation that you may not even know about. So go across town and... and Type in black church near me, (laughs) African Methodist Episcopal, like do your job, reach the community, pastor the people in your community, pastor people in your church. And what I found is black Christians are willing to share their experiences. And that's what you've done today is, and this is none of these stories are new to me because we've been talking about this for four years now. And you have to be, you have to admit just basic Christian humility Maybe I don't know everything, and maybe just because I didn't see it happen as a white person, and my dad and mom and Graham didn't see it happen, it may have still happened. And I think that's some people have a hard time getting over. So just listen to other people. And if you have black people in your church, that's a gift. If you're a white pastor in your predominantly white church, having a black member is a gift because it's harder to be there than not be there. <laughs> so God's put that person, and Asian, Latino, yeah. anyone that's different than you is a gift and a privilege that can open up doors that you never would have been able to on your own. So um, it's not scary. Either. Like it's not, there's no guilt. I think a lot of people are like, Oh, I got to like apologize and be guilty. I think it's fascinating to learn about stuff I'd never heard about and then have an opportunity to fix it. So you don't need to feel bad that your church was racist in the sixties, unless you were there in the sixties, which that could be a problem for some people. <laughs> well, but just like, it, it, and if you did have part of it, the Christian way of saying, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, and I'm going to work to fix it and not do it again. And then you move on. What should we say? You shall know the truth, yeah. and the truth shall make you free. And that's just that simple. It's that simple. Yeah, that's a great place to stop. 
Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice.